and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. Despite Dishy Rishi's best intentions, restaurant culture has been hit hard by the pandemic. Lockdowns and cancelled reservations, social distancing and staff absences have shaken a toxic cocktail for many businesses, one garnished with post-Brexit labour and supply chain shortages. With 10% of UK restaurants closing their kitchens for good, it's an issue that clearly won't go away anytime soon. So has our relationship with restaurants changed forever? And what's next on the menu? To chew on all of this, I'm excited to be joined by two special guests. Corey Mintz is a freelance food reporter and the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After. And Adam Coughlin is the editor of Eater London. Hello, both. Hi, Elena. Hello. Now, we know that COVID has impacted restaurants as businesses, but how has it redefined our relationship with restaurants? Is this really the end of the all-you-can-eat buffet? Adam, do you want to start? That's a very good question. I think what's interesting about, like, if we go back to sort of March 2020 and some of the kind of predictions that then kind of evolved through the spring and summer of 2020 and then started to play out towards the end of that year and then throughout last year is I think that the restaurants that were most successful were the restaurants that basically inserted themselves into people's daily lives when they couldn't function as a restaurant as we knew it before March 2020. So whether that was providing the ingredients for the banana bread that everybody was making suddenly or creating eventually a meal kit that someone might cook for a special occasion at home, these were all ways in which restaurants sort of became like integral parts of their community and served their existing customer base and expanded and grew their sort of network of customers. I hope that the pandemic means that business as usual, as it was pre-2020, cannot continue because it wasn't sustainable for restaurants and it wasn't sustainable for their employees, for, for restaurants, they were being told already for several years to prepare themselves for this, the disruption from the third party delivery services, which were taking these, you know, the exorbitant commission rates, uh, and that uh, all restaurants needed to prepare themselves for the idea that the majority of their revenue was going to be off premises sales. And suddenly they had to figure that out, not within years, but within days of March 15th. And at the same time, it was a horribly inequitable system for workers in in ways that I can't speak to the UK, but certainly in Canada, the US, there was a huge labor shortage and challenge to find experienced, willing professionals in the kitchen for many years before 2020. And we always need to point out when we're talking about the exorbitant commissions, to top it all off, the majority of these companies themselves are unprofitable. So to be operating at a loss of tens or hundreds of million dollars while siphoning profits from the industry you are supposedly trying to help, their model itself is not only not sustainable, but it doesn't make any sense to anyone other than the investors who keep funneling money into it in hopes of being, you know, the last Amazon, Facebook, whatever, tech giant, duopoly standing. COVID merely hastened and exacerbated uh, the variety of problems that were that were lurking below the surface. So I hope, I think you phrased it as, is the buffet closed? I hope the buffet is closed in aid of some better, more equitable future for everyone involved. 
COVID has seen hospitality workers in the UK rebranded as essential workers. Do you think that the pandemic has given us a new respect for people who work in the food industry? And I suppose more philosophically, do you think it's made us reconsider when and why we go out to eat? It has to. I mean, purely on an anecdotal level, uh, I mean, the majority of conversations I have with people now, I meet people is on the playground when my daughter's playing. And pre-pandemic, I mean, when I was developing the book and working with an editor, he had never heard of a ghost kitchen, you know, and, and I had written so many articles about labor and the third party delivery companies. And there were always, there was always a healthy skepticism with which they were met because a lot of these conversations seemed sort of like conspiracy theories. And when I meet people now and I explore, I, tell them what I'm working on. They say, yeah, I've heard about that. The, the conversation seems to have bubbled up because how can you avoid it? How the cooks are treated, how servers are treated, how people in grocery stores are treated. It just became such a major talking point. The challenge at this moment is sort of converting that awareness into compassion and converting that compassion or anger maybe into some type of actual movement. I mean, I've, we, we've seen wages go up in hospitality and retail, not that much, not maybe with the cost of inflation, but there's there's more opportunity for them to sort of push for, uh, I think, actual better working conditions all around by leveraging the public's awareness. It's interesting that during the pandemic, I mean, one thing I really noticed as the editor of a restaurant website, particularly in 2020, was just how much like restaurants and the word hospitality was part of the main news cycle every single day second perhaps only to the nhs everyone was interested in what was happening to restaurants and pubs and like the wider hospitality industry but like there's a disconnect between what they're called and the fact that they're classified as essential and and you know by definition they're important and how much they're paid and so i think to Corey's point it's like there needs to now be a movement where you know the real terms the wages and conditions for these for these essential workers is in line with how important they you know proved themselves to be throughout the pandemic. Now let's look back a bit. There was an excellent Christmas special in The Economist on the rise of the restaurant in the 20th century and it said that dining out used to be seen as the cheapest way to eat with takeaway establishments targeted at those who couldn't afford the wood or kitchen supplies necessary to cook at home. So when and why did restaurants and eating out become seen as an indulgence in the UK? I don't know a specific reason, but I would sort of hazard that it's because of, you know, what happened with the idea of French Nouvelle Cuisine and the whole sort of concept of fine dining. Since 2008 and the recession, dining out became, I would say, you know, comparatively at least more accessible to a lot more, lot more people, partly because it became cheaper. But it had slowly started to become more expensive again, and that's because of a number of different things, such as labour costs, business rates. Costs massively increased, and, you know, eventually that's going to affect the prices on the menu. I experienced some of that, particularly that, that change that happened around 2008 because I was a, a restaurant critic at the time, I sat in empty dining rooms and fancy restaurants and then watched as the, the chefs of those places realized they needed to make a career change and suddenly made their type of cuisine accessible to a much wider audience. And I think the public got hooked on that idea of sort of luxury at a 
bargain price because they had done away with white tablecloths and all the things that go along with fine dining. But uh, yes, absolutely, the price continued to rise in subsequent years. But it also coincided with the overall more long-term trend, as you said, that the 20th century was the, the century of the restaurant. In, you know, in mid-century America in the post-war years, people spent about a quarter of their food budget on dining out. And that just kept rising over the years until it nearly equalized in the early 2000s. And then just about, I think it was 2016, 2017, for the first time ever, food away from home spending, that's what economists call it, started to exceed food at home spending, which means the grocery store. And it did so for, I think, three financial quarters. The expectation was this is only going to increase with the ubiquity of the delivery apps. And then, you know, the pandemic happened. It obviously sort of threw everything into a blender. But ultimately, all these steps, including the third-party delivery, the convenience, they just they get people used to the idea of uh, food being cooked and served to you, which is inherently a luxury, the idea of that being sort of a commodity or amenity, whereas it's always been a luxury. I think we're starting to return to a time where there's going to be a, a lot more polarization of cheaper food with really low quality ingredients that's available for most of us. And everything else has to become a lot more expensive because, as we've said, labor cost is rising, food cost is rising, fuel cost is rising. I think it's the sort of middle class of dining, that sort of 30 to 40 seat restaurant that is really in the crosshairs. I noticed that in 1930s America, a restaurant meal cost 25% more than an equivalent meal at home. But by 2014, that gap had risen to 280%. So Corey, who is eating out today? And do you think that takeaways are, as we've said, more democratic? I mean, I think in the last five or six years, I've seen an expanse of what is being served and a bigger embrace of a wider culinary diversity. That seems more democratic, but it was still under the thumb of the sort of really oppressive uh, workplace expectations that keep the cost of everything low. You know, the foundational infrastructure, the sort of original sin of dining in America is the tipping system. You know, the idea that part of the cost of your meal is hidden. You know, it's, it's basically standard to tip 20% on top of the meal. So a fifth of the cost of your meal is hidden. And every time I ask somebody in England, I get a slightly different answer, but I'm led to believe there's a fairly standard 12.5% service fee and that tips are sort of sporadic. 12.5%, I would say, in, in London is standard. In some of the more higher end places in the West, the West End, tasting menu kind of venues, so, you know, there, there are occasionally places that are like 20%. There were a number of restaurants and it actually looked like it was going to pick up a head of steam and, and, and be picked up by more and more operators at one point in 2020, where like people were announcing when they reopened that they were going to ditch service charge altogether in order to be more open about the cost of things to basically advertise that they were paying their staff properly. It's going to take a real mindset shift for the consumer. Who has to get used to the higher menu prices. Yeah. It looked like people were going to start having that conversation. Like, if you want to go to a good restaurant, it's going to cost you a lot of money or more money than you might have been used to paying. The conversation hasn't kind of been picked up in a way that it, it might have looked in the summer of 2020. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. 
The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I remember at university meeting German students who were horrified that we ate sliced bread in the UK. <laughs> they said that it was marketed as toast in Austria. How does our restaurant culture here differ to that of other and non-Western restaurant cultures? I'm thinking in terms of the frequency of dining out, the cost. It's interesting that you mentioned the the Germans and the Northern Europeans. Um, I mean, I certainly know that the French and the Italians have a fairly low view of British food and the idea of going out to eat in, in England or the UK. My remit is principally London, and London is not like the rest of the UK. And the dining scene in London is, I would say, close, if not world-class. That is largely because of restaurants that aren't British. <laughs> there are m- hundreds of different cuisines that are available to eat in London and that are excellent. The point about frequency and dining out is is a really interesting one, and I think one that was definitely exposed by the pandemic in the way that so many things were exposed by the pandemic in the restaurant industry. I think everyone was taken aback, particularly in 2021, when we had, after the prolonged winter lockdown, in those months then, throughout the summer and autumn of 2021, and actually in, in the August of 2020, people really went for it. Like there was this huge pent up demand and like restaurants, restaurant, I think the restaurants that I spoke to at the back end of last year, just before Omicron, they were taken aback by how well the second part of the year had gone and it, it, it dramatically sort of outperformed their projections. So I think a lot of people had, you know, in this country are eating out a lot more than they than they used to. And it's a pursuit of definitely the middle class and the young mobile professionals. It's something that people spend their money on. And I think they really missed spending their money on restaurants and eating out during those lockdowns. And it's one of the reasons why the restaurants that were selling wine via retail and doing meal kits did so well and stayed afloat, because that disposable income that that sort of part of society was so used to spending carried on spending it in different ways. Deloitte recently surveyed a 1,000 consumers for their 2022 Restaurant of the Future report, and they found that consumers want, above all, three things, convenience, digital and safety. What does that practically look like in restaurants? Are we talking about conveyor belts and drive-in everywhere? Good question. I mean, I think one of the very interesting things about lockdown and the pandemic was how people like, learned more about where they lived and what they could eat nearer to home. And there's that wonderful expression that I don't know who coined it, but like the, in London, at least, this sort of polo mint economy where there was this sort of deficit of activity in the centre of the city because no one was travelling to work and there were no tourists. And you have all these this sort of vibrancy in the neighbourhoods. Digital, yeah, again, I mean, I think people are glued to their phones. And interestingly, I, 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 I extraordinary experience today. I found out about a restaurant that had kind of entered the area that I was in doing delivery only and I wanted to try it I you know within like 
five minutes found, of finding out about it, I ordered, and like within half an hour, I'd, I'd, I'd both ordered, received, and eaten that food. Once you've sort of tasted that kind of convenience and that ability to do it through digital, that's hard to sort of like unlearn. And safety, I think there was this discourse around like in London during the pandemic about restaurants being some of the safest sort of spaces in you know, in society because they have to do so much work on health and safety already. And therefore, the argument went, it was really unfair for hospitality to be closed. Of course, the glaring omission from the argument was like the social contact of people uh, in restaurants that that the, the policymakers are trying to avoid. But I think, yeah, I mean, people have become heightened, their awareness of their safety has become heightened. Now, I've read reports of some restaurants spending more money on their bathrooms rather than their menus because they know that's where Instagram influencers will be taking their photos. How has social media changed the nature of restaurants? Dramatically, entirely, at least in the last 10 years. I mean, I I recall the era when sort of social media emerged into the restaurant sphere and every chef sort of begrudgingly got on Twitter and half of them had sort of Twitter meltdowns within six months of doing it and found themselves arguing with people and whether or not someone near them pointed out to them, the reality was that their skills, while many were not with words. And then when Instagram entered the field after years of, of chefs uh, complaining about people taking photographs in the dining room and some chefs, you know, banning photography in the dining room, the chefs realized, Oh wait, the visual medium is for me. And they embraced it wholeheartedly, but I think it's been a, a, a bitter pill. You know, this, I think social media has effectively dethroned the dominance of not just legacy media, but the kind of work that, that Adam and I do, where, where one sort of spends some time properly reporting things. You know, the immediacy of social media has more or less supplanted that. And at the same time, I've seen restaurateurs and chefs acclimate to that by designing part of their menu and part of their space for Instagram. You know, it's, it's a pretty standard thing now. I think if you hired a design firm or an architect to build a restaurant, if you didn't already include it, they would ask you, where's the Instagram wall? Where is the collection of Spanish tiles against which people are supposed to take their photos? Where is the ridiculous menu item that probably doesn't taste good, but photographs well and will spur other diners to share this photograph and want to come here it's become part of the package and it's it's unfortunate because i think the people who come for those factors are not repeat customers they're not the kind of diners that are really valuable to restaurants now are high-tech restaurants of the future and things like ghost kitchens which i know you mentioned earlier or even amazon fresh anything more than gimmicks or do you see a long-term future for them and can I ask, Corey, if you want to answer this, could you also explain what ghost kitchens are first? Sure. Well, like I mentioned, when I was first putting uh, starting work on the book, my editor was still going, what are ghost kitchens? And the model is effectively, let's say I am a ghost kitchen operator. I buy or lease some large build- building with you know 5,000 square feet. I develop it and cut it up into, let's say, 10 different units, each of which has its own exhaust, burners, deep fryer, dishwasher, everything you need for a kitchen. And then I sublease that out to 10 different restaurateurs. I make sure that none of them are overlapping too much. You know, somebody doing burgers, somebody doing chicken wings, somebody doing shawarma, etc. And then they are 
operating a restaurant business that's only available online. They have no dine-in service, and the potential is for them to expand through virtual menus, meaning or, or vir- virtual restaurant branding. Mean each of those can say, "I can take my ingredients and sell them online as three different businesses, all coming out of the same kitchen." When I've spoken with ghost kitchen operators, the news seems to be there's a lot of potential for restaurateurs who are already successful and who already have multiple units of a restaurant brand. You know, uh, the people I spoke with had four or five restaurants in San Francisco or Manhattan. And for them to open a sixth location would cost them a million dollars, you know, for the build out. Whereas a ghost operation, they could spend as little as 50 to 80 grand and only sign a one year lease or in some cases, even a six months lease as opposed to a 5, 10, or 15-year lease. So a much lower overhead for investing in the opportunity to, for them, basically expand to a new delivery zone, you know, uh, acquire more customers. Whereas for new operators, you know, I think the pitch that, hey, here's a way for you to open your first restaurant, I, I think it's much, much less of an opportunity because it's so difficult to stand out in the digital marketplace if you don't already exist if you don't already have a brick and mortar store if you don't already have a sort of audience or following because otherwise you're going to be beaten up with people who have that or people who undercut you for price your actual question are all these things uh a gimmick I, i don't think so because i think they fulfilled the need that you suggested earlier by that deloitte survey what do people want they want convenience and for those who can afford convenience, there's there's nothing but potential growth. The peculiar thing about them is I think the, the reason they emerged, particularly in London, was like, oh, the reason like they sort of gained traction was because property was so expensive and wages were, you know, were, were, were on the up and staff costs were increasing. It was a way of not only minimizing risk, but literally cutting costs. One of the interesting things about the pandemic and because of the number of closures of, that have happened is that property prices have actually not, if not gone down, they, they haven't sort of continued to rise exponentially. There is, I think, in the short term, perhaps operators may be less inclined to sort of head to those dark ghost kitchens um, and exploit opportunities on the high street. What also happened before the pandemic was this sort of mass, like this this sort of annihilation of, of the casual dining market in, in, in the UK, where you had all these chains that, because of all those things we talked about, rising rates and ingredients costs and labour costs, these sort of high street chains like Jamie Oliver's um, Italian restaurants, it was a sort of perfect storm and they, they, they were no longer viable. And Adam, how must restaurants change to survive then? What support do they need? It's quite interesting. In I think it was um, it must it must have been May or June of 2020. We published a piece um, by an academic called Vaughan Tan. The headline of the piece was for restaurants to survive the pandemic or to survive COVID, they can never go back to normal. You know, his hypothesis was and it and it played out. It was like the restaurants that that became kind of indispensable and treated their communities with sort of respect and provided what they needed. There was like a kind of codependency then. That is sustainable. That's 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 good for the long term. But sort of in addition, restaurants wouldn't have survived the pandemic if it hadn't been for the government. And like furlough and the grants, the various grant schemes, the government sort of protected to a certain extent restaurant tenants from eviction. But 
it, it was the, the, it still hasn't been fully resolved. So there's still debts owed. But six grand for the interruption that Omicron brought over Christmas was, you know, chicken feed, and they're gonna they're gonna need more than that, particularly now that Brexit and staffing and ingredients are gonna go through the roof in the latter part of this year. I mean, it's sort of one crisis on top of another, really. And finally, then, both of you, which dining trends do you think we should be looking out for in 2022? And what restaurants are you excited to see open near you? There are a few restaurants in London that are operating in regenerative agriculture and whole animal butchery. And they're examples of the types of places that that Corey just mentioned where they haven't really got any problems with staffing, or at least haven't got anything like the problems that a lot of other places have got because they think about the way they do things really carefully and try and make it a place that's attractive to work, but also presents something really interesting and different for the consumer. It tends to be all joined up. I mean, whole animal butchery, for example, with rare breed meats and you know high welfare animals is better for the environment. There's a much lower carbon footprint from those those sorts of practices and there's a you know there's a much longer term future for the soil and for the world if people sort of subscribe to those practices so it's no coincidence really that the places that are kind of interested in those sorts of things are also the the places that are interested in in getting rid of service charges and treating their staff better and offering the consumer something really interesting whether or not that's in the time of lockdown or when restaurants are open so i think the thing that I'm looking forward to is restaurants that are progressive and that are interested in change, change for the better, whether that's for the environment, for their staff, or what they're offering for the consumer. You know what? I'm going to say the same thing in a different way, but let me let me phrase it this way. Uh, let me phrase it as here. here's a dining tip for wherever you live in the world. Here's the next restaurant that I think you should go to. And when you ask, where am I excited about? Uh, once it opens up, you know, we recently moved from Toronto to Winnipeg and we're stuck in our house because unlike London, um, restaurants are not open here. But wherever you live, here's where you should go to eat next. If you care about food, if you love food and restaurants, you probably have a list of restaurants. You have a list comprised maybe from Eater or other publications that have said, here's the best restaurants. Here's where we think uh, everybody should go to dine. And you have them in, I don't know, the notes on your phone or whatever it is you keep this. Take that list. And the next time you read a news story about the kind of restaurant that Adam and I have alluded to, this place that is devoted to sustainability or this place that has eliminated the service charge or the tipping or has some kind of benefit package, which I realize is different in England where people have public health care like we do in Canada, but they don't in the States, uh, but in some way is making a progressive move to treat their employees better. When you hear about that restaurant, go to that restaurant you list you keep. Take the name of that restaurant and put that at the top of the list. And the next time you go out to eat, that's where you're going to go. And hopefully one assumes they have great food too. There's no point in challenging the system if you don't already know how to cook and serve great food. And then when you do go to that restaurant and the owner inevitably comes around to schmooze your table and asks, how is everything? Ask them for restaurant tips. Ask them, hey, you're an ethical business person. Where do you recommend I eat? Uh, And that'll help you start building out that list that isn't simply comprised of the top 10 restaurants that can afford the publicity budget to promote themselves or operate on exploitative labor enough to get on those lists in the first place. 
Fantastic. Adam, Corey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you, Yola. Thank you. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Jelena Sofronievich signing out of The Bunker. Thank you for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jelena Sofronievich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.